Over the last two decades, I've been on a quest to learn everything I can about leadership, obsessed with what makes the best leaders so good. After running companies small and large for the last 20 years, today I speak on stages all across the world to audiences who are interested in that same question. My name's John Laredo, and I'm your host. I invite you to join me on this journey as we explore this topic, what makes the best leaders so good. Welcome to Tomorrow's Leader. All right, Tomorrow's Leaders. So this is a great interview. This is a guy I reconnected with. I've known for about 20 years, Scott Shaw. I had the privilege of working with him when he just came into the business. And this guy has just navigated his career extremely well and really, most importantly, found what his kind of unique spot is and his unique abilities and has just uh, done tremendously well. He's chief investment officer of Bash Capital, has his CFA designation, which, wow, like talk about hard, unbelievably difficult. I have all the respect in the world for any CFA out there. Um, And we talked about all kinds of stuff, managing the forks in the road of life and stepping outside your comfort zone. Really, really cool guy. Great conversation. So here you go. Enjoy it. Scott Shaw. All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on all things leader-related, related to leading yourself and leading others. I'm John LaRita, your host today with a great guest, a longtime friend of mine, Scott Shaw, who he and I got the uh, opportunity to work together years ago. Um, Scott, what has it been now? 20, 20 years. 20 years. Wow. Well, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for joining me. John, it's a pleasure to be here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I know you and I caught up recently and reconnected and, you know, talked about a whole lot of stuff. And uh, I'm really happy to have you on as a guest because I know there's a lot uh, that you can share with the audience. And we got people in all different walks of life that listen to this podcast, uh, from new leaders to leaders of organizations and CEOs to people that just want to leave their lead their life better. And one of the things you and I were talking about, you've you've really navigated your career path very well. And a big part of that was really figuring out what path made the most sense for you. Um, I know when we started working together back in 2000 or whatever, whatever that was, um, you were you came in as an advisor, a financial advisor. And then I know I remember quickly seeing, wow, this guy's got a lot of leadership potential and started you on a path on that direction. But why don't you just share a little bit about kind of the, you know, the what the path looked like and how you figured out what the right step for you was. Um, I think that'd be great for the audience to hear. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, yeah, it's been about 20 years. Uh, back in 2001, I uh, really launched my career uh, under your guidance uh, as uh, not only my first manager, but probably my most impactful one on my career as I look back, which I'm sure we'll get into so many things today. But really what launched me into management was yourself and seeing your styles and, and how you worked with advisors uh, and I went down that path and became a coach, began working with advisors and sitting in meetings and guiding them and trying to help lead and uh, I guess mold their future careers. And even as a young adult myself, I still needed so much mentorship from you. Uh, but yeah, being able to dive into that type of, uh, of, of a practice where I was working with my clients, but also working with advisors, it, it taught me a lot about myself. Uh, it taught me a lot about the type of leader that 
uh, I would become and, and that I am today uh, somebody that likes to lead by example. Uh, I do like to get my hands dirty and I like to work and I like to get into case analysis and work with advisors, but I am much more of that doer. And I, 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 I really discovered early on in coaching that sitting there with advisors next to me while being uh, fun and being a teacher was not going to be my end, um, my end platform, which was really to be working with advisors. And uh, I decided quickly to focus on my practice, uh, focus on developing a, a client service model that uh, clients would look at and enjoy their experience uh, and they would see value uh, in my uh, practice. Uh, and then uh, really, as we spoke a little earlier about uh, my fork in the road came like many advisors uh, in, the, in the great recession of 2008. Um, but that, that <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about a time period that, uh, squashed many uh, of my peers. I mean, it mm -hmm. took a lot of people out of the industry. So for me, that was the fork in the road. Um, uh, I, I told you briefly about a story. If you want me to go into it yeah, here, let me ask you a question though. When you, uh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm a big believer that there are sometimes things that happen in life that uh, are out of your control. 2008 certainly was bigger than all of us and out of our control and influence um, with the markets and the economy. But there's sometimes where things happen that put a fork in the road for you, you know, that actually make you really think about, okay, am I on the right path or do I need to change paths or do something different? Is that what you felt like 2008, 2007, 2008 was for you? Yeah, it's exactly right. Uh, that was my fork in the road of figuring out long term. Uh, what am I doing? Uh, what's my strengths? What's my weaknesses? Uh, and where am I going to thrive uh, in financial services? Um, the irony is uh, um, I was sitting uh, in synagogue in high holiday services um, and uh, it was Rosh Hashanah of 2008. And uh, I took my phone out of my pocket um and checked what the dow jones was doing and, and saw it closing uh down 700 points and at the time uh that was a large drop uh clearly my mother did not did not like me doing that in synagogue and i and i got the wrath but at the same time i recognized the feeling that i have is a lack of control uh the feeling that i have is is not what i perceived my clients uh, to want me to have at that time. And I didn't feel like a money manager. Uh, I, I felt like I manage relationships uh, and I do financial planning. And that is a large part of the game, but it wasn't what really got me motivated uh, to get out of bed every day and, and go to work. And I decided at that moment uh, to go down a different path in financial services and to become a, a CFA charter holder. Mm -hmm. uh, to begin that curriculum uh, was something that mm -hmm. took a lot of discussions uh, back and forth with family, knowing that uh, it, it would be a path that would not be easy and not be short. Uh, it would take years mm -hmm. uh, and a strong commitment. Um, so, I would have to. Yeah. yeah. So, and I want to talk about that because I, I have sure. in, immense respect for you and anybody has a CFA designation uh, because it is, I think, one of, if not the hardest, designations to get. So I want to talk about that with you. But it sounds like what I hear you saying is your 
it was almost like this this uh, light bulb of uh, anxiety over the fact that you didn't have control or you didn't necessarily have the uh, the clarity on why things were happening and and almost felt like you were in the past. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. Did you feel like you're almost in the passenger seat of the car with managing money versus wanting to be more in the driver's seat of being able to make decisions based on knowledge that you gained yourself? Is that my summary? I think summarizing that right? I think you're summarizing it accurately. And I think I'll always feel like I'm scratching the surface of, of the markets uh, and uh, really a, a equity analysis of, of what I do. But uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, that, uh, that feeling was there of sitting in the passenger seat along with my clients. Um, a lot less in control, a lot less uh, navigating the ship. Mm-hmm. And um, that had to change, uh, especially if I wanted to um, bring my practice to levels that I felt uh, it should get to. So you began the, the journey to get the CFA designation. So tell, share with everybody what that is and, and what is the process? Because I know it's an unbelievably rigorous test and process of many years. Tell, tell the audience what that's all about. Yeah, well, it certainly makes a root canal enjoyable. I can tell you that. Um, there's no doubt that when you embark upon the CFA curriculum, you are really setting yourself up for what is the most challenging curriculum in finance uh, that will take your um, education to a level that you didn't think that you can get to. Um, many times along the way, I had strong doubts as to whether or not I would complete it. Uh, I guess each level I had that doubt from level one, two, and three as to whether or not this was gonna happen. Um, But yeah, after spending close to six to nine months every single year committed to studying uh, every day, um, in 2015, I was able to finish it, but this was one that um, would, to me, every level gained more and more confidence in what I do Uh, and I, often got the question of why are you doing this? I got that from peers, from leaders, from family and from friends of why are you doing this? Why are you putting yourself through this seven days a week? You're up in the middle of the night studying, you work and then study and that's it. And I want it was something that I wanted in my life that was a huge goal for me of being able to attain that designation, knowing that that was the pinnacle uh, of what I perceived to be in asset management. And it was my personal goal. And I simply had the attitude of, um, I, I want to finish this. So, and they, get, they give the exam once a year. And if you fail it or miss it for some reason, you literally have to wait another year. Yeah, I think now it's a little with uh, with COVID. They changed a couple things, and now the computer based system. I think that level one and maybe one of the other two levels are are also on the computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, sitting in um, Philadelphia Convention Center with um, in level one, a few hundred uh, students. Uh, level two, a table. Level three had like five people. Wow. Uh, it was, it was, it was very, it's very interesting. And I'm exaggerating the point, of course, because that, that anxiety yeah. of when you sit there, yeah. um, that gets a lot of people. You have to have a very strong mental game mm-hmm. and you have to be very prepared. It's certainly what, what, not a curriculum to go unprepared into. Do you know what percentage of people actually complete the program? 
so this time around, I believe, um, well, let's see, maybe in the low teens, complete all three. Um, certainly first time test takers for level one, I believe it's close to a 40% pass rate, maybe a 35% pass rate on level two. And then I, I believe it was in the 20s for level three. So the cumulative math would wow. mean that, yeah, it's a, it's probably in the low teens of people or the high single digits of people that make it all the way through. So how did that feel? And do you find out right away that you passed or do you get a letter afterwards or? No, they make you walk home crying, thinking you failed. <laughs> uh, that that feeling for me every time walking home from the convention center. And by the way, that was like a 10 minute walk home. It take me like three hours to get home. Like I would walk throughout the entire city, going through every single question in my head and trying to think of what what went well, what didn't go well. And I always just came to the same conclusion of time to go back to work, mm -hmm. go service your clients. And in a month and a half, you're going to find out if you're studying for another nine months. Wow. And what do you do? You get a letter or you get an email or you get. Yeah, you, you got an email. And the second that email hit your inbox, like, oof. Wow. Yeah, that was that that's stressful. And so what did that feel like when, when you found out you passed the final level and you now had completed it? What what did that do you remember that moment pretty vividly? I remember it um <laughs> like the back of my hand. I for the first time for any of the exams, I, I went home. I couldn't tolerate the anxiety. Uh, I went home and uh waited and was like literally like right outside my house and got the email and went inside and, and was with my wife and my daughter uh, who had, she had been born, she was almost two years old at the time. So it was, uh, it was a very, very, very um, rewarding moment to share with my family. And oh, wow. because they, they went through it uh, equally yeah. with me. Wow. That's gotta yeah. be emotional. I mean, wow. After all that hard work and uh, well, I mean, congratulations. And that's a perfect way to find out with your family because they're obviously, it takes a lot of support from them to make it through that. I'm sure. Um, sure. It's yeah. kind of like you're the Navy SEALs of, uh, of the uh, financial industry designations. Except for the fact that they could do a lot of damage to my body with just their pinky. <laughs> so, other than that. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to mess with a, a Navy SEAL. I wouldn't want to mess with the CFA. Maybe a Navy <laughs> SEAL who is a CFA, that would be a dangerous combo. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll whip um, our calculators out. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I, I will say, so the, the, the interesting thing with you is you, it sounds like you came to this conclusion and I see this in all different industries. There's a difference between sharing information that you obtain from outside other sources um, and a whole different we uh, level or a difference of being a thought leader where you're truly the one that's studying things and digging in and coming up with your own conclusions and sharing those. And that's what a thought leader is. It doesn't matter what industry it is, my industry, your industry, any industry. Um, and it's not, you know, you, you made that transition, which most people don't. It's interesting because it's very hard. It's not like, okay, I'm going to be a thought leader and let me just now embark on the thought leader one-on-one program. It doesn't work that way. What, what is that done? What, when you, when you now you have that designation, what it was involved and in, tell, tell us about that whole transition of now being equipped to be able to come to your own conclusions about stuff and how that's changed your business and how you've impacted other people. Uh, yeah, that's, that's so important and um, very specific 
the, the investment policy statement uh, as a thought leader and going through the CFA curriculum, I, I really believed that adopting the investment policy statement of working with clients was important in our world where so many of my clients uh, for at the time over 15 years had never even heard of what an investment policy statement or an IPS is or how useful it is or the tool itself. And the reality behind it is now when in at Bash Capital, what we do is bring the analyst, myself and the financial planner to the table. So when we're working on a investment policy statement and we're talking about risk, we're talking about it from different perspectives, emotions and behaviors, where we certainly ask the common questions of how would you feel, but also the quantitative aspect of a client's ability to take on risk. Well, and a client's ability, that, that's a quantitative answer that's based off of an analysis having nothing to do with behaviors, emotions, or cognitive biases. And that's where I'll bring to the table an analysis for the client that is based off of their ability as well as a willingness. Now, what we try and do is educate. We like to jump up to the whiteboard and with our clients educate so that there is a clean correlation between a client's ability and willingness. You can imagine the difficulty working with a client if they have a extremely high ability to take risk from a quant perspective, but are the willingness to buy anything more risky than a, a, a CD isn't there. That's difficult. We want to really help educate and vice versa as well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because people, you know, they get, they get, uh, they get uh, influenced by the potential for rewards and gain, but don't necessarily understand risks that are involved in getting that or potentially getting that. Sure. Uh, that's interesting. So a lot of what you do is dealing and helping people understand emotions and as well of as, as not just the financial or uh, data related info that's backing up a decision, but emotions are a major part of every decision as well as financial decisions too. Yeah. Emotions, I find clients make more emotional uh, and behavioral decisions uh, less so than the uh, financial ones, the ones that make economic sense. And um, we like to bring that out and put it on the table. And everyone, everyone says to us how their house is worth more than their neighbors. It's the exact same home. Mm -hmm. And their house is worth more because they did X, Y, Z. Or we, I, I bought a stock, I, I bought uh, Alphabet at XYZ, so I want to I sell it at that price. So we anchor to that. These, we want to call clients out for it in a very uh, common way and friendly way so that we can understand and learn from it. Yeah, it's interesting. There's been a lot of studies about that. People feel that if they, there's a natural bias, if they own something and it's theirs, it's worth more. It doesn't matter if it's an idea, if it's a stock, if it's a house, it doesn't matter what it is. If it's theirs, there's a natural tendency for us to value it as being higher versus if we were going to buy it from somebody else 
we naturally, same item, but we naturally value it less. And, and, and you know, what's so funny about that is it's, it's similar to now in this market today, it, we're sitting here on, on August 24th and markets have been a little bit more volatile over the last couple of weeks here as seasonality has picked up. I get recency bias of clients, the feelings come right back of, oh my God, is the market going to drop again? Is, are we going to have another fall off cliff? Because very recently it did. Yeah. a year and a half ago. So that I, I tend to look at those sensitive feelings and I remind clients that you you don't get a, a, a bull market that pops when all the investors are skeptical or pessimistic. Uh, you usually see those bull markets die on a euphoria as John Templeton said best. Yeah. Uh, and we're certainly not at that point now, but I see that recency bias coming into today's oh, yeah. markets. It's like somebody going to a casino and playing roulette and they're betting on red or black and they see that the last nine spins of the wheel have been black. So there's some people that think, okay, well then the next one's going to be black or it's on a you know some kind of run. Or they might think the other way. Well, okay, because right. of those nine then it's going to be red. In reality, it has no impact whatsoever. <laughs> the odds to do still, with statistical odds are still the same. <laughs> exactly. You know, but it is interesting. You know, understanding people's biases and and how it influences decisions, um, and those are great ones. Are there other biases that you see that you are working to help clients? understand yeah. and avoid? The, I mean, we, we go through when clients represent things that are really not there, representativeness bias. We, we also see like a home bias of clients that have a fear of investing overseas uh, on the international market. So they stay domestic right now, which has certainly uh, protected them. Uh, but when we look uh, longer term, diversification uh, within asset allocation will, will help clients in terms of reducing their risk. Uh, so we do try and identify, but to me, the biggest ones I see are recency, uh, the anchoring bias and endowment bias, where people do believe, as you said, the assets that they own are worth more than the assets that they don't own. And yeah. that that I do see every single day. So we try and remind clients of that. I'm very agnostic to short-term uh, market moves as clients know. Mm -hmm. And each month they hear from me in terms of uh, what I believe uh, is occurring in the markets as well as the economy, give them a quick update yeah. uh, and more or less try and let them know, hey, here's what you're gonna probably see happen as seasonality ticks up in August and September, that volatility occurs. It kind of gives them that recency of, hey, I just read that, mm -hmm. they're aware of it, they're on top of it, and I could call them anytime if I have another question. So how do you deal with people that may not know, because I think, and not just with financial decisions, but with all decisions um, that do have biases, which most, if not all of us have to some degree, mm -hmm. Uh, but may not realize it. How do you make? How do you help somebody become more self-aware? And you're speaking to a wide audience here of people in all different walks of life. How can they be more self-aware and, and maybe pick up on the fact that hey, you know what? This makes sense. I do have a bias, um, and maybe I need to be you know more cautious. Start right with the heuristics of what you've done in, in history. Uh, go right to the statements. For me, in my world, I look at what clients have owned in the past. Uh, and usually there's a story behind it. Uh, oftentimes it's not because the investment was trading at an attractive valuation. Uh, it's because of a reason. So for years, I saw shares of uh, Cisco in clients' portfolios or stocks that some of us would remember from the dot-com crisis that were held 
because clients were anchoring uh, to where they purchased it at. And mm -hmm. had they just sold off investments that were no longer uh, working and, and reallocated, uh, they probably would have recovered. I, I witnessed that um, very often early in my career uh, of, of holdings that were constantly in every portfolio. Um, and frankly, I guess we can all say that we saw that in the real estate market too, because uh, yeah, the first eight years of my career, every real estate investor would often say to me, Scott, why would I ever invest with you uh, on the equity markets? Uh, you can never lose money in real estate. Mm. So why would I ever do that? Yeah. Mm. it's a, a, And you know, it's so funny. You bring back memories. I remember I started my career in 95, 94, and the markets, 95, 6, 7, 8, 9, literally shot straight up. And it was... Yep. 20, 25, 30% returns at some points. And I remember expectations being so off where people would come in and say, listen, you know, unless you can guarantee me 40%, I'm not going to work. Why would I work with you? I mean, it was that almost absurd. And it was mm -hmm. built by the recency bias of what had happened. It's like, well, of course, it's going to continue to happen. It's happened. Yeah. It's been happening. But those, it's those, those euphoric beliefs, though, that you could probably point to other points in your career also with real estate of how people may have had a, a, a single parent with one income, two mm -hmm. children, able to get a mortgage and then two investment properties. Yeah. Without putting documentation down. Right. Like there's there's right. just yeah. I mean, there's anecdotal evidence of irrational behavior right. that. In hindsight, if you look back, you you would say, oh, I would have done things a little bit different. Well, what I hear you saying, which is great, is, I mean, bottom line is there's patterns in people's behaviors. And if you look back for that person who might be saying, well, how do I make better decisions, whether it's financial or life or relationship or job or whatever, um, looking back at the decisions you've made and how you've made them. You know, we used to ask that question, you know, what was your best investment? How did you make the decision? or your worst investment, how did you make, what factors did you look at? And you'd see that most people stick to the same kind of premise of how they make decisions financially is how they'd make decisions uh, in relationships and everything. Um, it's not that dissimilar in terms of the biases that they may have. Very true. Yeah. Very true. That's excellent. Well, um, I, I know you mentioned, and I thought that was really interesting, that you've got a... Um, and I think you called it your your daily seven or your seven habits. And I, I love that in terms of how you kind of run your day. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, of course you love it, because in 2001, <laughs> you were the one that would make sure that that was ingrained in my every day so that I became a systems based person. And I, I am a, I'm a systems based person and I execute that way. So everything in my day to day is developed where there's a system, there is an operating procedure for doing it. And if I don't have one, I will be get very anxious and stressed over that. But mm -hmm. I generate leads every single day when I was starting my career. I knew that that was my core number one activity that had to be done, generate leads. I had to schedule initial appointments. Scheduling an initial appointment and. 2001 and 2002 is a lot different than it is today, especially when you were nice enough to give me a, a lot of big leads that may or may not have been called dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Mm -hmm. So scheduling initial appointments was very important. Holding appointments was critical, meaning 
the people that you were scheduling appointments with were actually showing up. That was a, that was a pretty big conversion ratio that we looked at servicing my clients. I didn't have many clients in the beginning to service. So every client I got, I made sure that this was top notch. Everything was done right away on time. You, you literally couldn't mess up if you only had three clients. Mm -hmm. So that was critical for me. I also believed in following up with contacts and you had a specific uh, terminology for what is a contact uh, because that's very general and broad. It was somebody that I was able to keep on the phone for two minutes and have a conversation with me. Mm -hmm. I was then expected to set an appointment with that person that was setting the right expectation for myself as maybe unrealistic as it may have been mm -hmm. following up with contacts was critical. One of my biggest ones was self-development goals. Every single day I set aside time to do self-development. And I began right away with the CFP. I, I understood that if you're going to provide advice, strategic advice and planning, the CFP curriculum, that being a fiduciary, providing advice along those guidelines and with the standards of practice that the CFP promotes, to me, that is where every client should begin. And that's where every advisor should strive to be at. That was important in self-development, along with really this um, wanting to teach, wanting to be a chalk talk teacher and get really good at that because I learned from the best. So I wanted to make sure to also become the best at teaching the different strategies uh, that we were implementing day to day with clients. Those mm -hmm. seven habits to me, that was ingrained. That was every day. If I did those seven key activities, mm -hmm. I knew I was going to bring on one client every single week. I knew that right away. I knew if I did 1400 dials, I was going to get 40 contacts. I was going to set 12 for we're going to show what was going to become a client. Yeah. That was my number. And I would memorize it like my birthday. Well, the great thing about that is, and I, obviously, you know me well enough to know that that's I operate my life that same way. And the good thing is most people don't realize the power of being able to focus on what you can control, which is the activity. Most people get so bogged down with the results of their life or their business or finances or whatever. And in reality, the result is a function of what you're doing and your actions and your habits and your patterns. And when you break it down and say, hey, let me just focus on those actions and behaviors and patterns and, and, and define what a successful day is. That's the other thing too. Many people don't know how do they win the day. And coming up with the concept of, okay, here's what I want to achieve every day. It doesn't matter if it's one thing, two things, or seven things. These are the must-dos that no matter what, I will make sure that I do and accomplish. And it's such a confidence builder because when you do that and you get in the habit of doing that, and maybe it's starting with one and then moving to two and then moving to three, but when you get in the habit of that, it just builds this feeling that you can, if you do one, you can do two, and you could do two, you could do three, this feeling like of growth and accomplishment that feeds that confidence that you have. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a great way to, to live life. And obviously you've had tremendous success, not just yourself, but with your company and also with your clients too. So it shows it works. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic, my friend. I know we're at the end of our time here. Um, as far as people, a couple of questions, I'm going to ask you in a minute because so, people that want to get in touch with you, how to do that. Um, but in terms of maybe parting words of wisdom, you've got a lot of leaders, a lot of people that are kind of 
maybe in that point where they're in a fork in the road and they're trying to figure out what's what's the right path or what what do I need to do to make sure that I'm reaching my potential and and happy and fulfilled? Um, what parting words of wisdom might you give to them that can help them kind of take a step in the right direction? Um, that's great. Well, I, I would say that one of uh, my mentors and one of the smartest people I know who helped raise me said, you need to love what you do. Uh, when you show up to work every day, you should be happy. You should love what you do. Uh, and that will really help in terms of um, your striving for uh the highest level within your career, if it's financial services or something else. But if you're not happy with what you're doing um, and you're looking elsewhere, um, that to me, that that takes a lot of guts. That's something that uh, I deeply admire people that recognize, you know what, I'm, I'm just not happy here and uh, I'm going to get up and I'm going to um, probably do something else. And, and I respect that a lot. So for me, my advice to people is to really love what you do. And I love coming to work every day. I love managing money, market expectations, uh, and really providing advice uh, around the markets and the economy. It's what I love to do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm centered around some great financial advisors. Uh, I have a phenomenal partner who's amazing at what he does in terms of financial planning and relationships. And as good as he is, that allows me to be happy. That allows me to do what I love to do is, is having a good partner. I, I waited a long time to have a good partner in financial services because that's not easy. Uh, that's a very difficult um, partnership to, to embark on in, in finances is, is joint practices. Um, luckily for me, I found somebody that we had synergies because as an analyst, he saw what I would bring to the table and from a, uh, a marketing perspective, from financial planning, from the uh, attention to details, the ability to manage a business, I saw that in my partner. It allowed me to stay in my avenue uh, of money management. Mm -hmm. If I have to go out of that, that's where those discomfort, that, that's not what makes me happy. So that, allowed, so that to me was extremely important, John, is having a great partner to support me. I love it. Got to have the right people around you for sure. Great parting sure. words of wisdom. We've been here with Scott Shaw, CFA, CFP. He is the chief investment officer of Bash Capital and a great friend of mine. Scott, great to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, John. You got it. And thank you all for tuning in today on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader. Uh, as always, appreciate you sharing, subscribing, like, go down below, give five-star review, and always appreciate your ideas for future content and future guests for now, thank you for joining us. Again, Scott, thank you. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader. For suggestions or inquiries about having me at your next event or personal coaching, reach me at john at loritogroup.com. Once again, that's J-O-H-N at L-A-U-R-I-T-O-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks. Lead on.